All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we have the opportunity to continue to reflect into the great Christian thinkers. And uh, it is Monday, so I have John O'Hara back in the studio with me. Uh, John, great to have you with me another evening. It is so good to be back, Joe. It's okay. been a while, John. It's been a while, yes. <laughs> it's been a while. I know I've been sick, so we had to re-air a program, and then the week before that, I was out of town. So um, it's great to have you back, John. And, and uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to this evening's program because we have the opportunity to discuss the most influential churchman in all the 19th century. And, of course, that is uh, John Henry Newman. He was described uh, in one person I read as the best Catholic thinker since Pascal. Mm, that is a compliment. Yes, that really is. And, uh, you know, he's someone who's close to my heart. He certainly um, is someone that I've spent a lot of time studying. Uh, as we will talk about, this is a man that comes to us from the friendly confines of Oxford University and having had the blessed opportunity to study there for three summers, you know, John, there were a number of times I found myself just kind of gravitating to those places where he was at. On a personal level, I had a, uh, I had a deeply moving moment when I went to the church where he had denounced the Anglican Church, and uh, I just kind of prayed before that, that ambo and found myself just deeply moved wow. about the why behind his conversion. So with that, John, let us uh, get going on this great man, John Henry Newman. Well, let's go over a little... Uh bird's eye view of his life. Sure, yeah. Uh, get the global part of it in. Uh, he was born in February of 1801 and died in August of 1890, so 89 years he was on this earth, long life. Yeah, pretty and much the, the whole 19th yeah, century, the 19th huh? century yeah. he was here, and he was born with a good IQ, I assume, mm-hmm. and went to Oxford early, joined the uh, uh, Protestant Church around 1816, so it was about a 15-year-old he joins the church uh, went to Oxford and graduated in 1820, not with highest honors, but he graduated. It, he uh, had overworked, and uh, when it came time for his exams, he just wasn't quite as sharp as yeah. he, anyway. But however, two years later, he was given a fellowship at Oriel College, which is at the time was the most intellectual of the colleges at Oxford. Yeah, yeah. And so that was quite good. And then he went through some of the uh, academic uh, professional, I use the word deals loosely, Sure. And he was made a pastor of St. Mary's Church, and there he gave homilies. Pastoral and Plain Sermons are, are one of his wonderful books. And and we should add here, too, John, when you're talking about the Anglican Church, there's an understanding of the low church and the high church. Now, early on, while Newman would have been a part of the low church, which, which would have been the more um, Calvinist or Protestant type, he really did gravitate more towards the high church, which really was a whole lot closer to the Catholic church than the low church, if you will. So I want to make that distinction. There's the low church, and then there's the high church. And uh, more or less, Carl Newman was very much known for him being a proponent of the high church. Now, about 1833, 1834, he took a trip to Europe, mm-hmm. uh, southern Europe, yes. and he, uh, Italy, Greece, and he was quite taken with Sicily. He so taken with Sicily, he went back to see Sicily uh, when his friends were on their way home, and there he got ill. 
and lay ill for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so. And he had some insights into the beauty of Sicily that somewhat, we'll say, drew him to Catholicism, although I'm not prepared to say that, not being mm-hmm. a Newman expert by any means. But when he got back from that, the Oxford movement began, and he was a proponent of that. Now, what was the Oxford movement? The Oxford movement was an attempt to um, go to some of the church fathers. We're talking about first, second, third, fourth century type writers and trying to see the essence of Christianity in them. Mm-hmm. And so this turned to be a little bit against the Anglican religion. Not, I mean, there was people in, in this, but it was a, it was a movement. Mm-hmm. And he was part of this movement. A movement within the context of the high church, if you yes, will. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. And, and he was in this, and he began to have more issues with the Anglican Church, and that they were kind of leaving real Catholicism. Oh, by the way, he was ordained an Anglican priest in 1825. He resigned his position at Oriel College, and within a week later, he was accepted into the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. It was a rainy night, and he met the uh, an yeah, Italian yeah, Dominican, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they talked all night, and he was accepted into the Catholic Church. And he was ordained a Catholic priest on May 30th, 1847. So two years after he came into the Catholic Church, 1845, he comes into the Catholic Church. Two years later, he's ordained a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he is a man of controversy in England. Yeah, he's a man of controversy. John, it should be said, Newman's life as a Catholic was very um, tumultuous. On one hand, he was vilified as a traitor and turncoat by the Anglican establishment, right? And on the other, he was distrusted by his fellow Catholics. And we should remember that at this time in England, most of the Catholics were comprised of the Irish working class immigrant stock, right? And they didn't know what to do with this highly intellectual convert from Oxford. So... There was definitely some tumultuous times. Now, herein steps um, Apologia Pro Vita Sua, because this is a work that was originally published in a series of pamphlets that basically explained why he became Catholic, right? In fact, the Latin Apologia Pro Vita Sua literally translates as defense of one's belief or defense of one's life, right? So he's given a defense. And once again, here we have the importance of understanding who Cardinal Newman is as a man, uh, a deeply sensitive, highly sensitive man, who in his writing in these pamphlets, um, it was so engaging, so heartfelt that he began to win people over. It's interesting, as this would be later published as Apologia Pro Sua. again, it was originally a series of pamphlets, this book, John, really ranks as probably the second most popular conversion story. Of course, the first being St. Augustine's Confessions. And the reason why is because he really connected with the people. A people at that time, John, which for all accounts just at that point didn't trust him until they got uh, their hands on this work, these series of pamphlets, these series of articles that he was writing, explaining why he became Catholic. And for all of you listeners out there, I could not encourage you enough to Correct, read yeah. Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which again, in simple terms, simply means um, a defense of why he converted. Really. Correct. Remember, he's a 19th century English writer. He's not going to sound like writers today. They're no. going to be long sentences. He's going to sound like a Jane Austen novel. It is great. <laughs> now, just a word yeah. or two about Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Yeah. On December 30th, 1863, <coughs> an article 
uh, Charles Kingsley was brought to his attention, and it was kind of a put-down. Yes. And he kind of felt he had to respond to this. And how could he respond? Because at the time, he was into magazine publishing. The Rambler, I believe, was the magazine yes. he was on. And they said, well, well you, look, you got to get this thing out quick. You better do it in a series of articles. So I believe in April of 1864, at the height of our Civil War, he begins mm-hmm. to write weekly articles. And, I mean, that's all he did was mm-hmm. just write. And mm-hmm. I've heard that at his uh, residence in, in England, which is still there, he wrote at a standing desk. There was no chair. That's what I've heard. The desk that he wrote at was there, and he stood up and wrote this. One day he wrote for 22 hours to make, mm. to make his deadline because these came out weekly. And at the end of that, he had the weekly pamphlet, shall we say. And then at the end of that year, 1864, it came out as a bound volume. Yeah. And as you're talking there, John, I'm reminded of, of something else, and this might be a footnote to our discussion. When he was going through his conversion experience and really going deeper into seeking to better understand what the Catholic faith was all about, he left the, the gilded halls of the prestigious Oxford University oh, yeah. and moved into this cow shed, you know, on, right. on the outskirts of town. Yeah. I mean, and this is what you see, John, in some of these saints, this desire to just live simply. You know, so many of these professors at Oxford University would, would live the high life, literally speaking. And no, not, uh, not Newman. He didn't want that. He understood the importance of just living this simple life. I mean, he lived in a cowshed, John. I mean, it's remarkable to think about some of the things that some of these great— now, I say saints, but John Newman's beatified, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, so he's blessed. He's not quite canonized, but uh, something to think about. We also saw this in uh, a C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. We'll be talking about C.S. Lewis here in the next month or so, and uh, another man who lived very simply, an Oxford man who just wanted to live the simple life. Yes, and Newman did that. A, f- a few little thoughts about um, his attitude is he was opposed to liberal religion. Now, what does that mean? When current writer commenting on Newman said, liberal religion was kind of like a cupcake in which you make your own frosting for the cupcake. I assume yeah. there's flour, then you put it on. Mm-hmm. And um, he felt that that liberal Anglicanism was kind of, I hate to use the word making up faith, but they were making a faith which satisfied their current emotional desires. Mm-hmm. And there were many different takes. Okay, you remember there's about 30,000 different Protestant religions, yeah. and yeah. this was the whole trouble. If you start to interpret this stuff to fit your psychological needs, you're going to come up with various religions. He just did, he, truth is truth. Yeah. And that's what he was looking for. Yeah. And he, he didn't feel you could find in these various offshoots. So uh, that was one of the problems that he had. Now, another problem he had was at this time, uh, Vatican I was going on. Yeah. And I, he did not attend Vatican I, but he certainly knew about it and wrote about it. And it was at that council they came up with papal infallibility. Mm-hmm. And he was not against papal infallibility, but I don't think he was a big force for it. Cardinal no. Manning, the Archbishop of Westminster, that's the most powerful bishop in England, was yeah. absolutely for it. Ultramontane is, was the word that would yes. describe those, yes. that group of uh, Catholics. So, there was, so here you have the big bishop of England kind of uh, on Newman's case a little bit, perhaps more than a little bit. Also, we have the issue of he was, uh, you mentioned the Irish, he, he went to uh, Ireland to try to set up a university, yes. and he got hassled primarily by the Irish uh, bishops there. But he wrote a great book called Idea of a University, and he was looking at more of an academic institution than I think they wanted. And he, and he came back to England, and so he, he was a man of great controversy. And just to go to the very end, uh, we have a new pope in uh, Pope Leo XIII and at his first consistory, 
he makes Father Newman a cardinal, yes. not a bishop, but a cardinal. And this kind of put a, a blessing on, you know, your writing is just fine with us. So the last 10 years of his life, he was a cardinal. Yeah. And uh, as you bring up the idea of a university, the name of this book, I want to speak to that a little bit and, and make one point here, John. You know, what he wanted was to take this intellectual training with a religious commitment and a deeper sense of moral discipline and bring it together and bring it together. And certainly this is what comes out in the work, the idea of a university. And certainly um, this is developed at that uh, university in Ireland. Send a copy of that book to the Jesuits. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's right. Um, he says something here in one of his famous appeals, John, for an intelligent and well-instructed laity uh, within the context of the university. And this is another big thing that there's an emphasis, too, on forming the laity. He says this, I want a laity not arrogant, not rash in speech, not disputatious, but men who know their religion, who enter into it, who know just where they stand, who know what they hold and what they do not, who know their creed so well that they give an account of it, who know so much of history that they can defend it. I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, I mean, there it is. I mean, there it is. You were talking earlier about truth. Understand and study what you believe in, and then live it and evangelize, catechize. In so many ways, this appeal right here is what is at the heart, John, of Vatican II, a formed laity who lives the faith and who preaches and teaches the faith. Yes. Um, and and a, a, a laity who is versed in the faith. I mean, this is what it's about. And so certainly... Uh, the idea of a university, which again is the name of the book, is something that in so many ways, John, you talk about the Jesuits, is something that should be front and center for every Catholic university. Because if we're going to be forming the laity, if we're going to be forming future generations and what we believe as Catholics, I tell you, this is a classic, one that we need to pay, pay yeah. close attention to. Hey, Christ gave us the church. That's what we're to do, is to follow Christ, not to make up our own stuff. And that's what he was trying to do, going back to the church fathers. What is true Christianity? And that's what brought him into the Catholic Church. Yeah, and now from that study, John, he also penned another very important work, one titled An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. Another big um, Good. work. Oh, yeah. wow, and yes. Now, what's behind that? An essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Once you hear the word development and tied to doctrine, that might get some people a, a little scared or concerned, John, but we have to appreciate what he's saying here. At its core, by way of analogy, we might think of an acorn, right? At its infancy stage, an acorn is, well, no more than an acorn. But what happens to the acorn in its full maturation, in its fullest bloom, if you will. Well, it is a fully grown oak tree, something that is impressive, something that ultimately is the fruit of what once was an acorn. Maybe we might think of, oh, um, I know the, the analogy is also given of the Mississippi River. If you look at the Mississippi River at its source, John, it's just this little stream. I've yep. been there. It's uh -huh. fascinating. I've also been at the mouth of the Mississippi <laughs> River, John, you know, in New Orleans, where, where it's, it's flowing, so full of life, you know. And when you think about it, as it relates to doctrine, in sacred scripture, you have the seed, 
in so many cases. And over time, you have the oak tree. You, you have the mouth of the Mississippi River, something flourishing. What's going on here? Well, let us think about the Trinity. In sacred scripture, do we have the Trinity? Well, we certainly have its seed. We have, we have the baptism of, of our Lord, where we have the revelation of the Trinity in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe uh, 1 John four sixteen, God is love. You have the, the giver, the receiver, and the love that is shared. Okay, so you have the seed of what the Trinity is all about. But John, read St. Augustine's De Trinitate. Uh, read Thomas Aquinas in the first half of Summa Theologica. Read some of the most re recent theologians on the Trinity. You have the bloom of the Trinity, if you will. Uh, someone recently asked me, so are you saying that uh, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas had a deeper understanding of the Trinity than Paul? Um, yes. Yes. I, that, I mean, that's exactly the, that, that's the whole yes, point. Right, yeah. We have to remember that this is what lies at the heart of sacred tradition. I wanted to read something from Vatican II, John, because it explains what we're talking about now beautifully, and in many ways, they are going back to Cardinal Newman himself. This is Vatican II from paragraph 8, De Verbum, which in Latin, the Word of God. Huh? The tradition which comes from the apostles develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. Key sentence, John. Yeah. That's what we were just talking about, right? For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers. So St. Augustine is contemplating the mystery of the Trinity, and it begins to expand. Thomas Aquinas is contemplating sacred scripture in St. Augustine. It continues to expand. John Paul II contemplates St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and it continues to expand. This is what uh, Dave Verboom is saying here. To finish the quote here, John, who treasure these things in their hearts through a penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience and through the preaching of those who have received through Episcopal succession the sure gift of truth. For as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward towards the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. Now, the key line there, John. So what we have here is an explanation of ultimately what lies in the heart of Cardinal Newman when he's reflecting into the development of doctrine, something that we need to be present to. Remember, uh, what is the passage that comes to us from 2 Thessalonians 2.15, John? We've read it before. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Amen. By word of mouth. Yeah. Right? By word of mouth. So we see these truths expand. And this is not a corruption of doctrine or an undermining of doctrine. In point of fact, you were talking about the liberals earlier, John. Um, there were some conservatives who were concerned that uh, Newman was a liberal because of the way he was treating doctrine, but no, 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 he said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact, he lays out seven principles, and we don't have time to get into this right now, John, but seven principles to apply so as to avoid the corruption of doctrine. Yeah, it's beautiful the way that it, it does develop. That is an excellent book, A Development of Christian Doctrine, which he yeah. wrote. And in the 1840s, you remember, over in the colonies, he might re realize that the United States adopted as their patron saint a Mary... Uh, from mm -hmm. the Immaculate Conception, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. was going to be declared at Vatican II in the 1870s. So there's your development of Christian doctrine. It was, it was there all the time, yeah. and people did worship it. One other little thing I just want to throw out is one of his later books is he wrote called A Grammar of Ascent, a difficult read, mm -hmm. which I have attempted, and yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll try it later when I'm a little bit. But anyway, one of his uh, 
One of the lines from there is, a thousand difficulties do not make a doubt. And what he developed there was something called the ileative sense, in which you put various things together. Now, you can't prove geometrically something, but if you put these things together, the chances that you are correct are quite good. And I think this is what was kind of one of the things that was leading him to truth. If you put all of these things together, you're, you know, you pretty much have to be a Catholic, as what one of the things he was making in this grammar of ascent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also alongside of that, John, is, is this phrase that we have from Ben Sixteenth um, that he would use when reflecting into Cardinal Newman, and that phrase was the hermeneutic of continuity. Yep. Hermeneutic is a, is a fancy word that simply means interpretation, you know, uh, interpretation within its uh, original context, if you will. So this phrase, the hermeneutic of continuity, very much speaks to what you're yep. saying there. Once you see one in light of the other, then you begin to appreciate the larger whole. The other key word here, I would say, is organic, right? Uh, yes. Uh, one giving life to another. You know, I was using the analogy of the acorn earlier. Um, why? Because that speaks to the church and how it's a living organism. That doctrine itself is not about something, but someone, the person of Jesus Christ, um, a living organism, if you will. So this, again, is what lies at the heart of Cardinal Newman as he was reasoning, right? Faith and reason, fides et ratio, John, was very important yes. to Cardinal Newman. And boy, does this ever come through in the idea of a university. Um, so faith and reason, he was reasoning through all of his questions, and questions within the context of the truest sense of the word, not the contemporary context of to doubt, no, to quest, to seek to understand. Mm. This is theology, faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding, yeah, faith seeking Anselm, understand. yeah. That's right. It's not the other way around. It, yes. You can't yes. go the other way around. No. Yeah. He, you know, one of the popular writers at this time was Hegel, and well, don't forget Marx came along too. He was a follower of Hegel, and if you recall your philosophy 101, Hegel yeah. had thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So you have a belief, pretty soon an opposite belief comes, and then they merge and you come out with something new. Yes. That was not, he was not a Hegelian by any stretch of the imagination. That is not the way that doctrine develops is through this Hegelian method. So therefore he was at the opposite end of some of these modern Hegelian type thinkers, which is just so typical of him. He's not a bandwagon jumper honor. No, in point of fact, John, the work, uh, an essay, on the development of Christian doctrine is a response to that uh -huh. in many ways. Uh -huh. And so it's to appreciate not the devolution of something as it expands, but actually the authentic evolution of something, which again was a part of the uh, motus operandi, if you will, behind the essay on the development of Christian doctrine. John, I wanted to get to the Beatification Mass. Okay. September 2010, and I want to oh, yeah. set this up with something. When I was studying in Oxford, I was there in 09, 10, and 11. And in 2010, I missed his Beatification by two weeks. Oh. And uh, I wanted to stay, but there's no way I was going to be able to stay. Um, anyhow, I remember being inside the classrooms uh, there, and... All of the, the prelates there of the Anglican Church and, and all of the priests, and they were not high on Benedict XVI, Pope Benedict XVI coming to England to beatify Cardinal Newman. They had a lot of strong and I'll just simply say negative things to say about Benedict XVI. And I would find myself in the classroom a year later listening to those same Anglican bishops, those same priests, those same professors who now could not speak highly enough of Benedict XVI. 
And I just at one point raised my hand and I said, you know, you've changed uh, your tone on, on what you've had to say about Benedict XVI. What happened? And they said two things. A, he's a much more compassionate and loving man than we thought. And B, during the beatification of Cardinal Newman, we understood he got it. He understood the English culture, and he certainly understood Cardinal Newman. Even if all of us here are not fond of Cardinal Newman, he understood the man, and we could not help but appreciate that. And that just struck me. Um, it's a lesson learned about uh, making assumptions, and I'll just leave that at that. But all that being said, I do want to speak to something he did say at the Beatification Mass. And specifically, you talked about him being named Cardinal in, 1970, or, um, in 1879, John. He took the motto, heart speaks unto heart, right? Heart speaks unto heart. And this is what Benedict XVI had to say. This motto gives us an insight into his understanding of the Christian life as a call to holiness, experienced as the profound desire of the human heart to enter into intimate communion with the heart of God. He reminds us that faithfulness to prayer gradually transforms us into the divine likeness. As he wrote in one of his many fine sermons, a habit of prayer, the practice of turning to God in the unseen world in every season, in every place, in every emergency. Prayer, I say, has what may be called a natural effect in spiritualizing and elevating the soul. A man is no longer what he was before. Gradually, he has imbibed a new set of ideas and become imbued with fresh principles. And as he closes here, Newman helps us to understand what this means for our daily lives. He tells us that our divine master has assigned a specific task to each one of us, a definitive service committed uniquely to every single person. And here he closes with something from Colonel Newman that I really wanted to share, John. This is Colonel Newman. I have my mission. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Ooh. So what does uh, Benedict XVI want to highlight there? Cardinal Newman fulfilled the task that was assigned to him, one that was enriched by this deeper sense of holiness and this deeper sense of the need to go out and to preach and to catechize. John each and every one of us have been assigned with a unique task. Yep. Your task as John O'Hara is very different than my task as Joel Holcraft, one that is very different than our radio managers, Andrew Palmquist, and so on and so forth, right? And we have to be the person that God is calling us to be. Pray for I don't, us, Cardinal Newman. Yeah, pray for us, Cardinal Newman. I don't, Newman, yeah. yeah, yeah, blessed Newman. I don't know, John, if you have any closing words. I know we kind of blitzkrieged our listening audience today with Cardinal Newman with a lot of information. And I would just say, if, if you need to hear this again, go to my website at joholcraft.org. There you'll find the podcast archived. And, and I really do, John, encourage our listening audience to read the works we've mentioned. If it's the idea of a university, Apologia Pro Vita Sua, um, his essay on the development of Christian doctrine. You talked about the grammar of ascent. So rich, so yeah, there's, many things. There's quite a few books about him. Yes, uh, And, yes. and uh, books which have uh, excerpts of his writings in them. Uh, one by Ignatius Press has about 60 different quotations from him, and you can find out quite a bit about him. He's worth finding out about. Anyone that you can legitimately compare to Pascal is certainly worth reading. Yeah. Uh, and he is a character who is both brilliant and humble 
And that's quite a combination. And with that, John, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.